0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs for the Pratt Library, and we're pleased to see all of you here this evening. Um, know that it's warm outside, and the traffic is terrible, and we really appreciate your making the effort to be here this evening. We're very happy to welcome Kevin Sherd back to the writers, the Pratt's Writers Live series. Um, he's the author, as you know, of the memoir, Lessons of Redemption, and in it he uses his powerful and compelling voice to advocate for change. Tonight we'll hear from his new book, Uprising in the City, which explores the unrest in Baltimore following the death of Freddie Gray. While describing the protests and violence, the book draws on Kevin's observations, his experiences, and his feelings as a Baltimore native and national youth advocate dedicated to helping inner city youth understand and escape the perils of street culture. In the book, he uses extensive interviews with key people in Baltimore and discusses how to break the cycle of problems which have plagued Baltimore for decades. Before Kevin comes up here, I'd like to welcome um, local author Sherry Booker, who is going to read the foreword from Kevin's book. Sherry.
1: Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Good. So honored to write the foreword for this book. Um, Kevin started telling me about it, and... um, Just couldn't say no. When Freddie Gray died, the people of Baltimore were outraged. Everyone wanted to know how another young black man could lose his life while in police custody. And when the answers were unclear, frustration and anger spilled out into the streets. There was an uprising in the city, as some citizens literally set Baltimore on fire. In this book, Kevin narrates the story of how this all transpired. But he also mapped out a plan to make sure it never happens again. I still remember the first time I heard Kevin speak about his personal journey. He was in Atlanta, being honored for, the fir- for his first book, Lessons of Redemption. In a room filled with hundreds of strangers, he opened up about what it's like to grow up in the inner city, being lured into the drug game, serving over a decade in prison, and then being released to, com- to become a youth advocate. Despite his path, one thing was clear. Kevin was a proud son of Baltimore, and he still is today. If anyone knows anything about redemption and transformation, it is Kevin. It's because of his unique perspective that he is still able to take tragedy and find triumph. Baltimore deserves to have its story told by someone who understands it, and Freddie Gray deserves to have his memory honored by someone who understands and has compassion for the streets. I've read many think pieces and articles about the city I was born and raised in. i watched many debates and discussions on the issue. But Uprising in the City is the cheat sheet to true reform and redemption for a great city with the potential to become even greater. With all of the commentary about the aftermath and unrest, Kevin is providing the blueprint to help rebuild a city that could have burned to the ground. Uprising in the City is a book that needed to be written, and only Kevin could tell the story of Baltimore with this much precision and accuracy, filled with compassion and unadulterated truth. The book, this book is the key to transforming a troubled city into a beautiful metropolis that it can be. Thank you for the opportunity.
2: Good evening. So, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, my inspiration for writing this book and how that all got started. Um, and first I want to thank the Ina Pratt Library again for supporting me with this project. Um, Judy Cooper, thank you very much. And Sherry Booker, thank you, thank you. But my ins- inspiration for writing Uprising in the City was just like many of you guys during April of 2015, I was a casual observer right? My plan was never to write a book about the unrest in Baltimore. That was never the plan, right? But plans oftentimes get changed, correct? Right? So as I observed what was going on in the city in April 2015, I just thought about our place in history. Because regardless of how we look at that, regardless of how we view it, regardless of who we blame for that situation, 50 years from now, 40 years from now, somebody's gonna look at that situation and that's gonna be part of the history of Baltimore, right? So I wanted to become a recorder of history. That's it. I'm not an expert on police brutality. I'm not an expert on uh, uh, poverty. I'm not an expert on a poor education system, right? I'm not an expert on unemployment in a city that has struggled for years, but I think I'm an expert on my life in Baltimore. And I think we're all experts on our lives and our experiences in Baltimore, right? Um, And whether it's where to buy the best crab cake (laughs) or where to go to the best barber shop, right? Or who's playing the best house music, right? or where the best art gallery and museum is in the city. We're all experts in our own way. And so in this book, I wanted to be an expert on my life, my experience, and what I felt during those days in, in Baltimore City. And so the book kind of opens up with the introduction to, um, to set the tone for the days of that week in, um, in April, and what was that day like? What was that day like for the protesters on 20, March 2015? Excuse me, April 2015. What was that day like for the, the marchers? What was that day like for the average person that was just sick and tired of being sick and tired? What was that day like? And so in the introduction, I kind of try to set the tone for what that day was like for individuals that was out in the street, that was there during the marches, that was there during the protests. But ironically, in Chapter 2, excuse me, in Chapter 1, I was actually in a college in the Virgin Islands, and I was actually invited to a juvenile detention uh, facility and i remember that day going into that juvenile uh, detention facility just before i came back to baltimore and seeing these young people incarcerated in the virgin islands right and i just thought about their plight right and their hope for a future right what did, what did they see and we had some really in-depth conversations when i was there about how did they see their future and how did they see the world but it was ironic to come back to baltimore and end up having the same conversations with young people here in the states right not the virgin islands but in baltimore city in the united states of america talking to young black boys and girls about their plight their journey their future right how do i see how do they see the future and so in chapter 1 i got to had a real in-depth look at that journey what was what was that journey like right Um, In chapter 2 Chaos in the City It was amazing because I woke up that morning And I never forget I turned on the television And I have a a habit of watching the early morning news So I turned on the, uh, the television to watch The Morning Joe talk show on MSNBC And in the Morning Joe talk show It was about 5.58, and the first words I heard as I rolled over were, Baltimore's on fire. And I said, wait a minute, Baltimore's not on fire. But for a split second, you would think that the Morning Joe show had it right, that Baltimore was burning to the ground. But for the guy in Kansas, for the guy in California, for the guy in West Virginia, watching this show, watching this news. For them, Baltimore was on fire. But for the people here that lived here in Baltimore, we knew that Baltimore wasn't on fire. We knew that there were some places where there were fires set. We knew that there were some dwellings where fires were set. We knew that there were some cars that were burning across the city. But we knew that Baltimore was not on fire. And so in Chapter 2, I talked about how the world received this misconception of what was really going on in our city, right? Not only did they have a misconception of what was going on in our city, but they also had a misconception of why. Because I thought that was the bigger question. The bigger conversation was why, right? Um, I make this, this, this comment that Freddie Gray was literally the match that lit the flame. But the gasoline was already poured. The gasoline had been poured for years, right? Years of poverty, years of unemployment, years of a poor education system, right? And some years of, of misconduct by our police officers. So the, the fuel was already there. And, and Freddie Gray was the match. Freddie Gray was the spark. But that wasn't the story that the world was receiving about what was going on in Baltimore right? The story that the world was receiving about what was going on in Baltimore is that you got these angry individuals that are mad and upset, and they need to be controlled, right? That was the story that was being relayed to the world, right? Um, And so in writing this book for me, again, I wanted to be a recorder of the true history of why, how we got here, right? Not only how we got here, but how do we get out? So how do we move forward? But that, that comes later. But really, how did we get to this place, right? Um, it wasn't until I started doing some research and I found out how the issue of, of, of poverty actually had plagued Baltimore for years. Because this was something that, so living here, you kind of get used to this, 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 this lifestyle. I grew up in the streets of West Baltimore, so you kind of get used to it, right? It may not feel so great, but our resiliency is, is amazing sometimes, right? So I didn't realize how devastating the poverty situation was in Baltimore, right, until I really started doing the research, because I didn't want to start talking about stuff that I didn't have the facts, right, because the last thing we needed was more, was more misinformation. I didn't want to be that guy, right, I just wanted to provide some facts based on the data and research, but also my own story, because I know Baltimore very, very, very well, right, and I felt that I could, if I could match that, those facts, right, with my, with the, with what I've observed or what I've experienced, then I could provide a a good piece of literature. And so, again, I wanted to provide a book that people could really get real information about where we were and how we got here. But again, I wasn't sure. I I never knew the poverty situation in, in this city was so bad, right? And growing up in the tough neighborhoods, you think this is normal until you've got something to compare it with. Right, So in my research, what I found was that there are a bunch of cities across America that have, fought, have, have dealt with their poverty situation and, and have done much better than Baltimore. So why is Baltimore at the bottom of the borough? Right? Why are we dealing with a 23 percent poverty rate, right, in a city where there's so much potential here? But why? That was the question that I wanted to ask. But it's also a question I wanted to provide to the world because I'm not an expert, so I don't have all the answers, right? And I beg to differ that some individuals think they have all the answers, but I don't think any of us have all the answers. And I, think, I don't think this problem gets solved without a collective conversation, especially a conversation with the people that actually deal with this situation on a daily basis. I mean, can you imagine... A doctor not talking to his cancer patient? can you imagine a doctor not talking to their patient that's dealing with heart disease? right? So the only way that this situation really, in my mind gets solved is a is a, a collective approach right with the people that are dealing with the suffering the most at the table so in that chapter, those are the things that I want to discuss, but <clears throat> in chapter three it was it was another eye-opener for me because I had spent some time in Memphis, Tennessee. And I visited a college while I was in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, talking to some students. And while I was there, I got a chance to visit the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And at that motel, that was my first time visiting Memphis. And for me, it was eye-opening going to the, to the Lorraine Motel. Right, It was eye-opening, actually standing just a few feet of, from the place where Martin Luther King was assassinated. For me, that was eye-opening, right? Um, but it was also ironic that Baltimore burned in 1968 during the, the, the Martin Luther King assassination. I had no idea that Baltimore burned to the degree that it had burned at, right? I heard about uh, what had happened in 1968 in Baltimore. Um, but I didn't have the, I wasn't even alive in 1968. So again, in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Lorraine Motel, just being there and, experience, and experiencing um, this icon for our country, for, uh, this icon for our time, right, and then going back to Baltimore and watching the city go through this Situation, this uprising, this these these this, this unrest, these riots, whatever we want to call it, but watching the city go through this after leaving the the uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and the, and seeing the Lorraine Motel, for me it was it was um it was an experience because I decided to do some more research on 1968 and what happened in Baltimore in 1968, right? And so in 1968. The burning in 1968 was nothing on the scale of what we experienced in 2015. And I'm quite sure there's some people in this room that were there in 1968 in Baltimore. They remember that time, right? But what we got in 2015 was nowhere near. I mean, seven people died in 1960. Almost 100 people were injured in 1968, right? Um, almost 1,000 people were arrested. The, 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 the burning of, of, of buildings was massive in Baltimore City in 1968. But what I found is the similarities were kinda airy for me. Because this was April 1968, but this was also April 2015. But the part that was airy for me was the, the emotion and the feeling of the people, right? And so the similarity was unemployment, right? Poverty. Police brutality, right, um, disenfranchisement, right, so fifty years later, April, fifty years later right? I mean forty seven years if you're doing the math, right we're still dealing with the same emotion of the people, right and again, the burning on that scale was nothing com- compared to you know what we had in 2015 not not even close. I mean, the burning in sixty-eight was massive compared to what happened in 2015. But the emotion of the people was the part that struck me, right? Because sometimes it's not what comes out of somebody's mouth. It's what comes out of their eyes, right? And what I witnessed, what I experienced, in the streets in April 2015, watching people's emotion. Not just the anger, but the pain. Because you could see the pain in people's eyes in April 2015. And for me, I needed to know why were people so angry. Because it was deeper than just Freddie Gray dying, right? It was deeper than just police brutality. It was much deeper. And I I wanted to figure out, how do we we get to this place? And so in in, uh, chapter 3, I talked about 1968. But I talked about that journey to get to that emotion. Why did the people feel this way? Right? Because, again, the the, the similarities as far as the the burning, nowhere near the same. But the emotion, right? The trigger in 1968 was, was the death of Martin Luther King. That was the trigger. Right? But you had all these other things brewing. You had civil rights brewing. You had unemployment. You had poverty brewing here in Baltimore City. But the trigger, the trigger was the assassination of Martin Luther King. The trigger here in Baltimore was the, the death of Freddie Gray. I mean, I mean, individuals are just tired, right, of a situation that had been going on for years. In Chapter 4, um, I wanted to talk to other individuals because you can sometimes we all have our truth right so I could look at one thing and I could see one thing but another individual could look at that same object and see something different right so people across Baltimore had a different view of what happened on April 2015 Many people had their own belief on what started it, how it started, how it should end, what should be the outcome. Everybody had their own view, right? And I heard a guy say, uh, make a comment uh, regarding um, the truth in his eyes. The truth as he sees it. So this is my truth as I see it. So individuals across Baltimore had their own truth as to how they, how they see this thing, uh, how did this thing manifest? Everybody had their own viewpoint. And I'm just, I guess I don't know what it comes with, with maturity or a better understanding of the world, but I, told, I clearly believe that everybody's entitled to their own opinion. It could be good, bad, stupid, right, wrong, whatever. If that's, your, if that's how you see the world, that's how you see the world. But everybody that I talked to had a different viewpoint. I'm talking about from kids at 16 years old and 15 years old to why the riots started at Montgomery Mall, right, to men that were around in 1968 that why we still deal with unemployment in our, in our city. Um... Everybody had a different viewpoint, and I wanted to to to, to 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 document that viewpoint. So I was able to talk to some different people and get their viewpoint on the, on the city. What, what is that? What does Baltimore look like to them? And why? When did this? Why did this situation start? What What does that look like to you, right? Uh, chapter five: Poverty and pain. This was a, it was a a deep conversation for me to have with myself as I wrote this this chapter because so as I dug through the history, as I dug through some research, as I looked at Baltimore on a bigger scale I decided to look back, go backwards right Um, my grandfather uh, he came to Baltimore in, in 1940 from South Carolina right Migrated north with my grandmother. So when he arrived in Baltimore, he was 23 years old. He was born in 1917. But when he arrived in Baltimore in 1940, one of the first jobs that he got was actually a good job, a good-paying job, and it was actually in um, um, Sparrows Point in Bethlehem still, right? 1940, 1950. And with, with that job, my grandfather was able to raise – I hope I'm not off with this, but I think it was 12 uh, kids, right, in West Baltimore, living on North, 320 North Hilton Street, right? Um, my, my grandfather lived there for decades, but he worked at Bethlehem Steel in uh, Sparrows Point. At the time, Bethlehem Steel – was the biggest employer in Baltimore City at that time. And, of course, we know now that's not the case. Baltimore City, Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland are the biggest employers in in the city, right? But Bethlehem Steel, in those days, up until the late 80s, was the biggest employer in Baltimore City. And so my grandfather was able to have a job at Bethlehem Steel and raise 12 kids off of a job in Bethlehem still. Try having 12 kids today. (laughs) Imagine imagine what your life would be like today with 12 children, right? But he was able to raise 12 kids. My grandfather wasn't in the streets. My grandfather wasn't involved in in, in illegal drug business, illegal activities. He had a job raising 12 kids, right? That he was in and, and, and owned a home, owned a car, right? Was able to enjoy life in Baltimore, right? But something changed. Because when Bethlehem Steel closed, Baltimore was left with a void, a huge void. Thousands of jobs were taken away from Baltimore when Bethlehem Steel left. And so, This void left a lot of African-American men and families with no jobs available for them, right? Unemployment skyrocketed around that time. Um, We used the term white flight where uh, individuals left Baltimore and moved to the counties, right? But, again, my grandfather was able to raise a family, feel proud, Right? feel like a man off a job in West Bo- in, uh, Bethlehem Steel. In this chapter poverty and pain chapter 5, I looked at the poverty numbers. I looked at some of the some of the effects of poverty on on uh, on Baltimore, but also on children, on families, right? I found out that poverty affects children in a highly negative way, young children. Something that I never even thought of before, right? When you think about that situation, when you think about poverty, you rarely think about the kids and how how they've been affected, right? Um, One of the things that really got me was looking at um, this study from Johns Hopkins. So in this study from Johns Hopkins, it talked about how poverty in Baltimore was so devastating. And in this one study, this study stated that if you're born into poverty in Baltimore City, birthed into poverty, if you're birthed into poverty in Baltimore City, you have a 7% chance of getting out. Right. So when I first looked at this study, I said, no, this can't be true. This is this can't be real. This has got to be some made up stuff. Right. But as I look deeper and deeper at this study, it almost brought tears to my eyes. Because you're talking about. So right now, as we speak. Right now at Sinai Hospital or Johns Hopkins Hospital or University of Maryland Hospital, a child right now, born to two parents living below the poverty rate, right now, that child has a 7% chance of getting out of poverty. This child hasn't even been, went home yet, right? The child's still in the hospital and he's got a 7% chance of getting out of poverty just because he was born to two parents that are living in poverty, right? And that took me back to my past. That took me back to uh, the days growing up, myself, below the poverty rate. But it also took me back to that that feeling, that emotion, because as a writer, that's the thing that I I wanted to grasp onto, I wanted to grasp onto that emotion. But it reminded me of my own growing up in Baltimore. And I grew up in the streets. I, I, don't, I, never, I don't deny that. I grew up involved in drugs. I started dealing drugs in West Baltimore at age 16. I spent almost 12 years in prison for dealing drugs. I don't run away from that, right, because I learned so much from that experience, right? Um, but I remember the days of not really caring about life, not feeling like, well, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't commit that crime, right, because I don't want to mess up my future. We never thought about a future. We never thought about how we felt. Uh, you know, if we made this mistake now, it might mess up our retirement at age 60 or at age 70, We never thought about a 401k. We never thought about, you know, living with the grandkids at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Right? We didn't feel like we had a future. Right? We didn't feel hope. We felt hopeless as young kids. So that's... Partially why we made some of the decisions that we made. That's why partially we made some of the decisions as, well, maybe selling a little drugs ain't so bad, right? Well, maybe carrying a gun ain't so bad. This is not so bad, right? That's how you felt. So in in 2015, to see a study that talks about if you're born into poverty, you basically don't have hope. You got a 7% chance of winning. Well, that's what we felt 20 years ago. We felt like we had a 7% chance of winning, but we didn't have a study to prove it. So oftentimes we talk now about, you know, why young people are acting the way they act and, and why they do some of the things they do. And why, because many of them don't feel like they have a future, Right? And, and, and again, as a writer, I enjoy tapping into the emotion. Because I, without the emotion, everything else is just blah, blah, blah. Right? Just another conversation. Right? But I wanna, how did you feel? What made you cry? What made you laugh? That's a good book, right, for me. And so I wanted to tap into that emotion because again, I remember feeling. Like, there may not be a tomorrow. And in, in, in my last book, I, call, I called it the, um, the I'm next syndrome. I call it the I'm next syndrome, right? If you're in West Baltimore, you're 20 years old, your friend just got shot, he just got killed. The guy you went to school with just got killed two days ago. The guy last night just got shot up, right? The guy that you hung around with three weeks ago, he just got murdered, right? You kind of start feeling like I'm next. So I call it the I'm next syndrome. You get the I'm next syndrome, and you start living that way. So you start making decisions based on I'm next. You don't, start, you don't make decisions based on, well, I don't want to do something stupid because I don't want to mess up this 401K. Well, I don't want to mess up this retirement account. So you're making decisions based on how you feel. The I'm next syndrome. When you talk about poverty, you have to have a conversation about how do people feel about their future. Because people are going to make decisions based on how they feel about their future. Right? And I think we do a huge misservice in the city. We don't listen enough. We don't listen to what our young people are going through.
1: We don't listen
2: to what the people that are living with these situations every day, how do they feel, right? We kind of cast them aside, like they don't matter. But they're the, they're the, they're the ones that matter the most in the equation. The most. And so, for me writing, um, you know writing that chapter poverty and pain it was it was it was painful to see these numbers and it was also painful for me to think that baltimore has had black leadership for several years now do you not know that this stuff exists do you not know that these numbers exist do you not know that our people are hurting? Do you not know that, that, that 24% of the residents of Baltimore City are living ben, below the poverty rate? So when you're making your decisions regarding policy, because that's what has a major effect on a lot of these things, the policy. What's the, what is the policy in place? Right, to put this situation on a better path. But it was painful to even just look at this stuff. And, again, I'm not naive. Like, I grew up in the streets. I know people that are struggling. I know people that are hurting. I know people that have been hurting for years. But just seeing the numbers and seeing what's going on across the United States and seeing Baltimore at the bottom of the borough, and then you want to wonder why people are protesting in the streets? Why people are marching in the streets? Why people are sick and tired of being sick and tired? That was the emotion that I wanted to tap into um, with this chapter because I just felt like I would I would be doing other people a mis a a, a a disservice without having that conversation. But also I'll be doing myself a disservice because. I remember those days not looking at, not thinking I had a future, right? I mean, I wake up today, I I love life. I enjoy life, Every morning I wake up, I'm just happy to be alive, right? So I'm happy across the board right now. And I jump out the bed. But I remember the days not jumping out the bed. I remember the days wanting to stay in the bed. Right, And I guarantee you there are thousands of people that don't want to jump out of the bed in Baltimore because they got to deal with these situations. And so, again, I just wanted to have a real conversation in this book about how people are being affected, how youth are being affected, and how we need to have a real conversation about how this is affecting our city. Again, my grandfather raised 12 kids off of one job. Right. I mean, when I heard the the uh, the unemployment rate in Sandtown-Winchester, 50 percent, 50 percent unemployment rate, 50 percent poverty rate in America, I was blown away. How is this possible? Like, who's been watching over this for the last several decades? Right? When the poverty rate was at 40 percent, where was the person that said? wait a minute, something ain't right here. We might need to do something about this. When it was at 35%, where was the person in charge of that business? Because for far too many, this is a business now. Where was the person in charge of that situation that said, wait a minute, 35% poverty rate? That's extremely high. Maybe we should do something about that. And so, again, in that chapter, that was one of the things I really wanted to touch on. Um, one of the things I really, really wanted to have a conversation about, um, you know, I wanted to, so when you talk about Bethlehem still moving out of Baltimore, moving from Baltimore, leaving this huge void, leaving this huge gap in our city with respect to jobs, and I've tried to figure out, like, how do, so how do we get to this place? And I, and I, I, um. It never dawned on me that, that, that Baltimore was at, at one point an industrialized city. Like, that was where we made our bread and butter, right? Being an industrial city, uh, repairing ships in, in World War II and that kind of stuff. I was like, wow, this is incredible stuff, right? But I also looked at how globalization had a huge effect on the unemployment situation in Baltimore, right? From an a, a industrial city that, 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 that uh, a business that be- literally became um, um, uh, 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 technology, how technology had a huge influence over um, the, uh, the business of, of um, the industry, because you no longer needed bodies. You no longer needed people. You had computers and you had robots that could re- replace people and replace, and so many of these jobs left. They were gone from Baltimore, and so it left a huge void But how do we, so the next question I had was, how do we fill that void? And how do we prioritize things to make sure that that void gets filled so that people can have a job? So that people don't have to look at the streets as their only way out. Because at the end of the day, everybody in this room, every adult, right? There's one thing we all have in common. Several things we have in common. But one thing we all have in common, right? How am I going to eat? Fundamental stuff across the world that every human being has to think about on a day-to-day basis. Fundamental stuff from from uh, Dubai to uh, uh, Dublin, Ireland, right? From Mozambique to Texas. How am I going to eat? And for many of us, that's an easy conversation. We go downstairs and, and, and grab some Oreo cookies out of the refrigerator at 1 o'clock in the morning, right? Or we have some bacon and eggs. But how am I going to eat is not a, con- a hard conversation for most of us, right? But for some, that's a tough conversation to have, especially when you don't have a job, right? And I'm, I'm always of the mindset that at the end of the day, a man is going to figure out how to eat. And if the underground drug economy is dis- his only the only thing that he can rationale, that this is the only thing that makes sense for me, that's gonna happen. So if we're gonna end a lot of the things that are going on in the city, like crime, like drugs, we gotta make sure people got a way to eat. And part of that is to make sure that people have jobs. So a lot of our conversation has gotta be around ending poverty, and making sure that people have jobs. Because without a job, how are you gonna eat? How are you gonna take care of your family? Right? How are you gonna look that child or maybe two kids in the eye and say, everything's gonna be alright? When you know everything may not be alright. And you might start having to make that hard decision. Do I go to the streets or do we starve? Because for some families, believe it or not, for some families, it's a tough conversation to have. And I remember young, I remember, I, I didn't really know what was going on early on, but I remember my mother and father looking at each other, and and I got two brothers and, and, a, and a, two sisters and a brother, and, 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 and the, the money's not right, and things are not being paid, and it's not a lot of food in the refrigerator. And we got to make some tough choices. Do you pay the water bill, the gas bill, or the food bill, right? I remember those days. So in, in writing that chapter, I really wanted to tap into a couple of different things. One of the things that um, in Chapter 9, I think I, w- I wanted to have a real conversation about solutions. Because we, we talk about the problems, and we got to continue to talk about the problems. Right? We're going to talk about the problems today, gone, right? because that's part of the only way to fix them, is to keep that conversation out in the forefront. But the other part is um, like solutions, right? um, workforce development programs, getting people trained, getting people ready to work, getting people the skills that they need for this new world, this new world of technology right, that no longer exists, because, well, it exists now, because the labor force is changing, the workforce is changing a lot, and to make out, to to make sure that our people are competitive, to make sure our people have the skills that they need, so when jobs do come available, they can get hired, we got to talk about workforce development, right, um, and we I have, I also have to talk about education, our education system and our schools in Baltimore, right? Um, I don't think we do enough, and I also don't think we do enough listening to the young people, because they have some of the answers we need. Some of the answers we need are already there with our young people, but, but we got to do a better job of listening, right? Um, Again, I'm just out of the mindset that the, the people that are experiencing the problems on a day-to-day basis, they are part of the answer. So if we're not having a conversation with them, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice. And then, of course, the, 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 the criminal justice um, system, we have to definitely have a conversation about this, um, 2004, there were 100,000 arrests in Baltimore City. 2004, right? So when I looked at that, I said to myself in chapter 8, zero tolerance, how is that even possible? Like, how do you arrest 100,000 people in a city of only 600,000? So let's just do the math real quick, right? So every one out of six individuals were arrested in 2004. So let's just do the math. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, Ralph i send you some money for cigarettes. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, sir. One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, miss. One out of six individuals in Baltimore were arrested in 2004. 100,000 arrests because of Mayor... Martin O'Malley's idea of a zero-tolerance policy, right? The majority of these 100,000 arrests, guess what they were for? Take a guess. Loitering? Littering? Um, a $10 bag of weed? A $10 bag of cocaine? A hundred... How do you make 100,000 arrests in a city? But the bigger question was this. Who was at the leadership when we got to 50,000? Didn't somebody say, God, man, 50,000 arrests, that's a lot of people. Maybe we should think about tweaking this. Where was somebody at when we got to 60,000? 70,000 80,000 Look, I'm not sitting here saying that um, we don't need a police force cuz we absolutely do. Right? Absolutely do. We can't survive without our police force. I'm a, I'm a t- I'd say that right now. We can't survive without it. But it's broken. My biggest problem with the whole equation is that 100,000 people had a mark on their record when it was time for them to go look at a job. A lot of problems with that whole situation. But for me, the biggest, because at the end of the day, how are you going to eat? If you can't get a job, how are you going to eat? And if you can't get a job, how do we expect people to not to be involved in, in things? Is that a real expectation? That you can't find a job and now you're just going to starve and die in the streets? For most of the people that I know in West Baltimore, that's, that's not going to happen. They're going to figure out something. So, how do we create a fair system where people are giving second chances, a real second chance, not probation, with a mark on your criminal record, where, OK, we're going to put you on probation. Okay, that's great, but now I can't get a job, right? A hundred thousand arrests in one year. In chapter eight, I had to really wanted to have a conversation about um, the zero policing. Um, excuse me, the, the zero tolerance policing that we kind of fell into this trap of somebody having this thinking they had this great idea. And this great idea turning into a disaster because many of the people that I talked to in the streets in 2015 during the uprising, during the um, situation in April, many of them had trouble finding jobs. Many of them wanted to work. I don't even know how many men I've met that didn't want to work. I mean, I, I don't even. I, I don't even. But, but thousands of men that wanted to work and felt like they were in this trap of, okay, I got this criminal record, so I can't find a job, or I got this criminal record where I can't find a livable wage. Forget about a minimum wage. Forget a minimum wage. I need a livable wage. How am I live? How am I eat? How am I going to feed my kids? Because if, that, if, that's a, if that's a piece that we're just going to ignore, right, if that's a piece that we're just not going to pay, well, you know, that guy made a mistake and that's, that's his problem. Or, you know, that guy made a choice and a decision, that's his problem. If that's a piece that we're not going to make relevant, make important, we're never going to solve the problems that we're dealing with, ever. Ever. And just looking at the sheer numbers and just looking at many of the men that I've met that literally told me, like, look, Kevin, I've tried to find a job. I've tried hard. I've went on 10 interviews. Nobody's called me back. They're talking about my background. I just got to feed my, my son. I don't know what else to do. I think I'm going back to the game. Because that's the piece we don't want. We don't want the guy going back to the game. We don't want the guy feeling like the game is all I got left. Because once you paint a person into that corner, we're asking for a lot of, only bad things is going to happen, right? And so in that chapter, when I just looked at all the, the zero tolerance policies and the all the um, the, the uh, things that went on, they were associated with April 2015, the poverty, the criminal justice system, the unemployment, the education system. I could have wrote a 600-page book, but nobody's going to read a 600-page book. <laughs> Nobody wants to read a 600-page book, right? But I'm hoping you want to read a 266-page book, right? Um, And I'm hoping that, look, I'm not an expert in none of this stuff. Not even close. But I want to spark the conversation. Because what I don't want to happen is that 2017 comes around. (laughs) And we don't even remember April 2015. We're not even talking about it. It's not even part of the conversation. That's the, that's, that's the, the biggest fear I have. The 2017 comes, 2018 comes, and we're not even talking about 2015 anymore, right? We're not even talking about, hopefully, the many lessons that we've learned from that situation. So maybe it won't happen again down the road, right? Or because if I'm hurting, we're all hurting. If he's hurting, we're all hurting. That's what the community is about. A community is not about, okay, I'm going to do well over here. But if the guys over there aren't eating, that's their problem. That's not a community. A community is everybody coming up together. Right? Because if we got guys that feel like I got to go to North and Pulaski to sell dope because I can't get a job, and we think we're going to go down to Harbor East and just enjoy life, and that's not going to be a part of anything that's going to have anything to do with us. That's just not a reality. That's not a community. A community comes up together. And so, the less fortunate, the marginalized, the, 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 the minority, these people got to have that seat at the table. And I just want to spark the conversation. Right? Um, I know it's, time is getting close, and I don't want to Go over, but I also would love to uh, hear from you guys. Cause I and I appreciate you guys uh, uh, coming out today to, um, and I definitely appreciate the Enoch Pratt Library for the support. And so I want to answer some questions from you guys. <laughs>